One of the very interesting things, just to throw this out tonight before we get into Revelation 2, that I didn't bring out on Sunday night, there's a lot of question as to, you know, where did Dan Brown get all this information and where did this all come from? And, of course, as I shared Sunday night, and I'll talk more about this, he goes back into what's called the Gnostic Gospels, which were these false writings that were written about two or three hundred years after Jesus was on the earth. And it was they were written to undermine the credibility of Christ and Christianity. Um, but most people don't realize that also it actually goes back even further than that. A lot of what Dan Brown writes about in his book can actually be traced all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad and to the beginning of, of Islam and the Muslim faith. Because... Muslims believe, in fact, this is sort of interesting, Muslims actually, they have three things in common with us that even liberals don't buy into. Muslims believe that Jesus did miracles. You won't find too many liberals that believe Jesus really did miracles. They always come up with some reason, but he really didn't do miracles. Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, even though he wasn't God. I never quite figured that one out. But you won't get many liberal scholars to believe that Jesus was virgin born. And Muslims believe that Jesus is coming again, like it says in the book of Revelation. You won't get any liberal scholars to believe he's coming again. But that's about where it ends as far as our common ground with the Muslim faith. Because the Muslims believe that Isa, Jesus, will come back and defeat the Antichrist, and after he defeats the Antichrist, he'll get married, he'll have kids, he'll live through a ripe old age, and he'll die. <laughs> and that's pretty much what Dan Brown, I mean, Dan Brown is, you know, he'll, he has, he's been married, he has kids, he'll die, yada. So, you can even go back to the beginning, because for anybody who was raised in the Muslim faith, they, they've heard that before, Jesus being married, Jesus having kids. Ever since they were little kids, they were taught that in the, from the Quran. So, uh, again, you, you can just see that, again, a lot of this stuff isn't new, this is stuff that's been around for centuries, maybe even thousands of years, and it's just repackaged, all right? It's just repackaged. For those of you that weren't here Sunday night, just a real quick thing. Uh, the main claims of the book are that Jesus is not God, Mary Magdalene is God, Jesus and Mary got married, Jesus and Mary had kids, their kids moved to France, they became the Moravian line of kings that were the French royalty, and Mary's bones are buried underneath the Louvre Museum in France. That's what the book's about. So you see, you don't even have to read the book. There it is. All right. And at the very end of the book, Robert Langdon, the character that Tom Hanks will be playing in the movie, basically falls down on his knees and worships the bones of Mary Magdalene instead of Jesus. So you, you and I really have a choice. We can either believe the Da Vinci Code and start worshiping Mary, or we can believe the Bible and keep on worshiping Jesus Christ. I'm going to choose to believe this. And reject the Da Vinci Code. All right? But it is shaking a lot of people's faith. There's a lot of even Christians who have are reading the Da Vinci Code and they're they're like, you know, what, what's what's going on here? You know, it just so we need to strengthen their faith and encourage them in that. And then there's a lot of people that's just using it as an excuse to quit church and quit God. And I shared with them Sunday night. There's a guy that wrote on the internet that after reading the Da Vinci Code, he'll never set foot in church again. And uh, so, you know, whatever. But anyway, we'll, we'll be out there to try to answer people's questions and make some sense of it all, okay? All right. Revelation 19. 
Revelation 19 is where we're going to start out tonight. And while you're turning there, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that more than anything else tonight as we gather together that we would just allow this time to, for you to speak to us. And Lord, for us to just fall in love with Jesus a little bit more than what we did when we walked in. For Lord, if we can leave here tonight just a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit more in love with Jesus than when we came, that, that'll make it all worthwhile. We do want to just declare right now, we love you, we thank you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you've done for us. And we pray throughout this evening that we would just continue to focus upon you and focus on your word and allow your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. And Father, help us not to just want to come here each Tuesday to just get more information into our head, but to allow what we're learning to grow us and to make us more like Jesus Christ and allow the information that we do get for us to use to share with others so that we might encourage them or maybe witness to them if they don't know Christ as their personal Savior. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, Revelation 19. We begin with what I call the Hallelujah Chorus. <laughs> and the reason I call it the Hallelujah Chorus is for this reason. This word, hallelujah, only occurs four times in the entire New Testament. And it is reserved only for the first six verses of Revelation 19. In other words, what I think John and what God wants to... He didn't want to just use this word flippantly throughout the New Testament. He wanted to save it for, for an opportune time. And here was the time where the hallelujahs were going to come out. Now, hallelujah is used in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, Psalm 50 times. But this word in the Greek language in the New Testament is never used any other place except here in Revelation chapter 19. You'll see the four times it's used. It's used in verse 1 of chapter 19. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's used in verse 3. Hallelujah. It's used in at the end of verse 4. Amen. Hallelujah. And it's used at the middle of verse 6. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the all-powerful reigns. So let me just read this. Because again, we are reminded then at the beginning of chapter 19 that heaven is a place of praise. That heaven is a place where people are focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they are offering their praise at all times to him. So after these things, the judgment of religious Babylon that we talked about last week, and the judgment of false you know, religious Babylon and then economic, in a sense, Babylon, after these things I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants poured out by her hands. And you'll notice that part of why he's being praised in heaven is because of his judgment. A lot of times, the judgment of God is looked at as something that is questioned, something that is denied, something that is 
not looked upon in a favorable manner. People can accept the, the loving God, but they cannot accept a God who judges. But here in Revelation, we've seen God judge throughout most of the book. And here he is actually being praised for judging because he is a God who is holy. He is a God who's just not going to let sin run its course forever. He's a God who's going to make things right. And because of that, he's praised. Because he is judging the great prostitute, the one who has corrupted this earth and many people on this earth. And he's also, as the Bible says, praised because he's finally avenged the blood of the saints upon the earth who've died during the tribulation period because they were not willing to take the mark of the beast. And because of that, they were martyred for their faith. And so we also are reminded that God is praised here for being the avenger of his people. The Bible teaches us that we should not take vengeance into our own hands, but that we should leave place for God's vengeance and allow him to sort of set the record straight and to settle the books and the accounts, if you will. In fact, we can even go a step further than that and say that God's judgments in the book of Revelation are not only part of his plan and purpose for the overthrow of evil, but his judgments are also in response to the saints' prayers. Because throughout the book of Revelation, we have seen where his people on earth are saying, Lord, how long before you come and judge what's going on here? How long before you intervene? How long, be, how long are you going to let this go like this? Come and make yourself known and, and show yourself strong and, and judge this earth and those who are rebelling against you. So in a sense, God is just answering the prayers of his people who are saying to him in prayer, God, how, how long is it going to be before you finally break through and before you finally put an end for once and for all to evil and you finally avenge your people? and set them up in this world. So then verse 3, Then a second time the crowd shouted, Alleluia! The smoke rises from her forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And again, we are reminded that God is on the throne. In spite of what we see, in spite of what we read in our newspapers, in spite of what people are going to see during the tribulation, they must never forget that God is on His throne. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and all you who fear him, both the small and the great. And then I heard what sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters, and like loud crashes of thunder. They were shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the all-powerful, reigns. And not only here, then, in the first six verses of Revelation 19, is God praised because he is judging, he is avenging, but also because he reigns. He has come to rule and to reign. Now, God is ruling and reigning. The problem is, it just doesn't look like he is. So there's a lot of people on earth that say, sort of like going along with what Pastor Ron said Sunday, they think they're in control. <laughs> you know, when they're really not in control. But at this point in history, God is going to make himself so known that people will know, oh, you're right, you are in control. He will reign in a very visible, out front, out there reign that's not going to be mistaken for anything. 
right now, yeah, it looks like at times he's not reigning, that he's not in control. And that's why the Bible says for you and I and for the tribulation saints, until he comes back at this point in history, we must walk by faith and not by sight. We must trust his word and trust in him and know that he's ruling and reigning even though it doesn't look like he's in control sometimes. And that everything is in chaos and everything is turning into anarchy and, and the whole world is just turning upside down. But God's plan and purpose for this earth is moving forward exactly where he wants it to. And we must never forget that. And so that's what the first part of Revelation chapter 19 is all about. Now let me just share a couple other things and then I'll stop for any comments or questions. Then we come to another very interesting part of Revelation 19. Where in verse 7 it says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. In fact, if you go over to verse 9, you'll see there one of the blessings in the book of Revelation. Blessed are all those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Now for us that don't have a Jewish background, a lot of times we can miss a little bit of the significance here, but in, in, in the Jews' way of doing things, sort of a, a wedding was in three parts. The first part was what's called the betrothal part, and we're sort of familiar with that, with the whole story of Mary and Joseph and the Christmas story. They were betrothed to each other. And, and this was very binding because, as we know from the Christmas story, it would have taken a bill of divorcement for them to break this betrothal. But in the betrothal period, there's been no sexual union or anything like that yet. In fact, they're not even living together yet. Usually in the betrothal period, for a Jewish boy and girl, they're betrothed at a very young age. Uh, way before they actually, in a sense, get married, they're betrothed to each other. So they're not even living together. The boy is still living in his home that he grew up in. The girl is still living in his home. But they're betrothed. They're, they're pledged to each other. They're promised to each other. So that when it comes to the point where they can get married, then comes the next step. And the next step, and I don't really have a word for it. I'm sure the Jews do. It's where the groom, okay, just goes to the home to get the bride. So he'll leave his home and come and pick her up. Say, come on, you're, you're coming with me. Now's the time. Now, she is given a little bit of a clue as to when he's coming. It's not like, you know, years go by and all of a sudden he shows up on her doorstep. But she doesn't know exactly when he's coming. So that sort of plays into a lot of the parables and the things you hear about always be ready for the bridegroom. You don't know when he's coming. Well, that's sort of where how the Jews do that. They, she doesn't know exactly what day her bride is going to show up. It also goes back then, if you know, in Matthew, the whole parable of the ten virgins and how they were invited and they didn't take enough oil with them and the bridegroom came and some of them weren't. You know, were without oil and they, they couldn't go to the celebration because they weren't prepared. So that whole thing fits in there. Well, for you and I, first of all, we were betrothed to Christ when we accepted Christ as our Savior. Then our relationship with Him was cemented at that point. But obviously we're not together yet. So we get together with Him either when we die or 
more importantly, how this ties into the picture of how the Jews do it, at the rapture, the bridegroom is going to come back and get his bride and take them to be with him in heaven. John chapter 14. And then the third part of the Jewish marriage is what's called the celebration. We call it in our day, in America, just a wedding reception, where after the wedding, after the vows and all of that, you go somewhere, you eat a lot, you may dance a little bit, all that, you know. It's a party. It's a celebration. The reception. Well, trust me. I don't know what... If you've ever been to a, you know, a big party or reception after a wedding, Jews do it ten times more than that. Their celebration, if there, any of you ever been to a Jewish wedding, they know how to celebrate after a wedding. In fact, their celebration go on for days. In fact, rabbis will tell the people at the celebration, if anything else interferes with that celebration, just cancel it. If, any, if you're worried about maybe uh, violating one of our Jewish laws to have fun at the celebration, just disregard it until the celebration's over. I mean, they just, everything's focused on the celebration. They truly want to celebrate. Because it is a joyous time. Well, that's what this is talking about. Because there's coming a day that here at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes back and settles everything on earth, where then we're going to be called to what's called the wedding celebration of the Lamb. Where all the saints then of all time, Old and New Testament, are going to then finally be together along with the tribulation saints, and we're all going to be invited to this wonderful celebration with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I wanted to sort of share that with you because I think that's a cool picture of how that ties in with things today. Now the other thing I want you to see before I stop for a moment is this. We are able to go to the wedding celebration and we are able to be a part of the groom coming to get us and betrothed because we have accepted the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ allows us the invitation. That, that's the only thing we need to be invited, in a sense, or be a part of this. But, notice in this passage something very interesting. That the garment that we wear to the wedding celebration is not made of Christ's righteousness, it is actually a garment that you and I make for ourselves by the way we live our Christian life down here on earth. Because notice what it says. First of all, it says at the end of verse 7, the bride has made herself ready. That means that you and I are responsible just like a bride even today. I mean, brides take a lot of time to prepare for their wedding, to meet their bridegroom. To... And so they're saying, look, as the bride of Christ, use this time while you're a Christian to make yourself ready for this celebration. The only thing needed to get into the celebration is the righteousness of Christ. 
But what garment we wear into that celebration is going to be determined by how we've lived our Christian life. Because notice what it says in verse 8. She, the bride of Christ, was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen. And then don't miss this. For the fine linen that we are dressed in is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the garment is made up of the righteous things that we have done. Now again, we understand that those righteous deeds are only done because we're depending upon Him to do them, but it is still our responsibility and how we're appropriating all the resources and the righteousness and all the opportunities that God gives us. So that's why when people say, you know, like there, I remember us talking about this probably months ago now, about people who just have the attitude, well, I'm just satisfied with just getting there. And that's okay. We're all going to get there. And we're all going to be part of the same celebration. But we're all not going to be dressed alike. (laughs) Because all of us have lived a different level of commitment to Christ in our Christian life. So all of us are going to be dressed a little bit different. And that's where it gets into that whole thing about We're all going to be in the same heaven, but we're not all going to be rewarded the same. Because all of us are are going to have taken the opportunities and the things that God gave us, and we're all going to have done different things with them. So the rewards that all of us get are going to be different. So we're all getting to the same place because we're all getting there by the same way. We only get to heaven by the righteousness of Christ, not by our own righteousness. But we are rewarded, rewarded, not based upon Christ's righteousness, but really based upon what we've done after we had Christ's righteousness in our lives and became a Christian. How many of you ever saw that in the book of Revelation before? Okay. You're going to make your own wedding garment based upon, again, don't miss this, not Christ's righteous deeds, but verse 8, the righteous deeds of the saints. You make your own wedding garment based upon how faithful and committed you've been in your Christian life. So again, for me, I'm just going to say, for me, I want to look pretty good when I walk into that celebration. So I'm going to try to live as, as committed a Christian life as I can. Again, when we get to heaven, it's not to show other people up. It's, it's not about pride or anything. In fact, I'm sure just like with the crowns that we receive, what do we do with them? We throw them back at the feet of Jesus. And so he's going to get all the glory for it. But I think it's just a reminder to us that, you know, in some ways God treats us all the same in the sense that, yeah, we're all going to get to the same heaven and enjoy heaven for all of eternity, enjoy him for all of eternity. But in some ways, it's going to be different because just like we've shared, there's different degrees of punishment in hell. There's also different degrees of reward in heaven. And this is just one of them. The garment that we will be wearing to the reception or the wedding celebration of the Lamb will be made up of the righteous deeds that we have done, not that Christ has done. All right, I've beat that horse long enough. But I thought that was important. And something that a lot of people just, as they're reading, they doesn't click. Yes? Isn't there some other reference, like possibly 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, to getting your robes clean? 
Oh so yeah. Exactly, and Brian, I don't know the exact references, but yeah, you're right. There, there's other references to the fact of, of maintaining your garments and yeah, using that imagery. Yes, yes. How about the lake of fire at the very end? Are there different layers of punishment in the lake of fire? Yeah. I didn't know. That. Yeah, we're going to talk about that tonight too. Hopefully, we're going to get to that. Yeah. For instance, and this is an extreme example, and I hate to even use anybody, including him, but I'm going to use him. Okay. Uh, Hitler is not going to have the same degree of punishment in the lake of fire that somebody else will have. Okay, I'll just say that. Nobody likes Hitler here, right? So okay. He's usually a pretty good example, yeah. So say somebody who dies without Christ and Hitler, yeah, they're again, they're going to be all in the lake of fire, but just like in heaven, different degrees of reward for the righteous, different degrees of punishment for the for the unrighteous. Yes, Carlos. Yeah, I have a question on, um, on, on verse 5. It says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise God. And it, had, it just mentioned that God was on the throne. That, that voice wasn't God. Right. I believe that that voice was probably one of the seraphim that we were introduced to earlier in the book of Revelation that had the the six wings and the eyes on the front and the back and it was around the throne of God at all times saying, holy, holy, holy. Because this, in the original language, just means it's coming from the vicinity of the throne, not coming from the actual throne itself. But yeah, it's a great, great thought there too. Um, all right. Let's move on. You'll notice then in verse 9, we pick it back up. So then the angel said to me, write the following. Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. He also said to me, these are the true words of God, meaning they're the words of God and therefore they're true. Okay, this is really going to happen. So I threw myself down at his feet to worship him. But he said, do not do this. I am only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony about Jesus. So again, here we have seen another example in the Bible where when somebody tries to worship somebody other than God, they're rebuked. That's not permitted. And that's, again, if, I, if you weren't here some of those days I've said this, that's how you can tell the difference between in the Old Testament. When Jesus shows up in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. And the reason we know it's Jesus is because he permits worship of himself not an angel, it's not an angel of the Lord, it is the angel of the Lord, and because it's the angel of the Lord, and it's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, he's worshipped, and he's allowing them to worship him. All through the Bible, when it's just an angel, the angel's like, no, 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 don't worship me, I'm just the fellow creation of God like you. Angels never allowed anybody to worship them. And that's why, like today, we have to be very careful. You know, there was about 15 years ago, there was this whole thing about angels. And everybody was focusing on angels. And everybody was picking up angels along the highway. And they were getting in there and they were disappearing from the back seat and all that. And I'm not saying some of that stuff doesn't happen because Hebrew says, be careful how you entertain a stranger, you might be entertained. But all I'm saying is, sometimes we so focus on angels, we almost worship them. And they're like, please don't worship me. Please don't focus upon me. Focus upon Jesus, because notice the very next thing that the angel says. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. And then notice this statement. For the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Meaning, 
that Jesus is the focus of all prophecy. Whether it was Old Testament prophecy that was looking ahead to his coming, or whether it's New Testament prophecy that's looking ahead to his second coming, all prophecy was always focused on Jesus. And that's why the book of Revelation is the revelation about Jesus. Now, God the Father is just as much God as Jesus is, and God the Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is. The Trinity is the Trinity, and they are God of very God, but they all have different roles. And Jesus is the one that is to be the focus of prophecy. You see, Jesus is the one that is the focus of prophecy. I mean, you study prophecy, it's all about Jesus. You, how many prophecies do you know of that deal with God the Father or God the Holy Spirit? I don't know of any, except maybe the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, something like that, but it's very minuscule compared to the thousands of prophecies about Jesus. And one of the interesting prophecies, by the way, that prove the reliability of the Bible, just to throw this out, and this sort of goes Da Vinci Code in and out, too. But, you know, I'm so, since I've spent so much time with that, just one of them, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, and then there's also, I think it's Zechariah, I want to say chapter 10, but don't quote me on that one. I'm not sure about that one. I'll put a question mark by that. Are just two Old Testament prophecies that talk about the crucifixion of the Messiah. Now again, even non-believers in God, textual scholars, historians, whatever you want to say, date this as a thousand years before Christ when it was written. Alright? There's great proof for that. Alright? Which then means this. Somebody was predicting that the Messiah was going to be crucified a thousand years before he even came. Now, first of all, you've got this problem. They didn't even know what crucifixion was back then. That's why it had to come from God. Because crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. So again, one prophecy that non-believers would have a hard time explaining is, explain to me something. How can there be places in the Bible, if this isn't God's word, that predict crucifixion whenever crucifixion hasn't even been invented yet by men? Who else but God, who knows all things, could have done that? That's just one of the fulfilled prophecies that Jesus Christ did. Of course, we know where he was born and, and where he lived and the fact that he was going to be in Egypt for a while. And I mean, you know, out of, I mean, just, we could go on and on and on. So prophecy is so important to our faith because as I've shared with you before, fulfilled prophecy, the prophecies that already have been fulfilled are probably one of the greatest evidences for the authenticity of our faith more than anything else. Because people can't explain that. I mean, I, I shared this with people, and they're just dumbfounded. They, they don't know how to handle that. Because there really is no way to handle that. How does somebody know about the crucifixion of the Messiah if it wasn't even invented by man yet? And we can show you for sure that this is a reliable account, that this was written a thousand years before Jesus ever came or before the Romans ever came on the scene and even invented crucifixion. I mean, it's like one in the tenth to the twelfth power or something, the, the probability that that would have happened. And then we've got also got to understand this. 
Jesus' crucifixion was a little bit different than just anybody else's crucifixion because not everybody else that was crucified had a crown of thorns on their head. Not everybody else who was crucified ever had a spear in their side. So there's some uniqueness even to the crucifixion of Jesus. It puts that even in a whole different category than any other common criminal that would have been crucified during Roman crucifixion. It's just fascinating when you start to think about this and just how incredible... Because again, all that was predicted. Crown of thorns, spear in the side, wouldn't have his legs broken. When again, most victims that were crucified had their legs broken so that they just died. Because you essentially when you die by crucifixion, you're dying by asphyxiation. You just can't get any more air into your lungs. So they would push themselves up for a while get a deep breath, and then they would slump back down, and they would hang there on the way to those nails, and then eventually they would get enough energy to be able to push painfully back up on those nails and get enough air to where they could get some air into their lungs and then sink back down. Well, when they would come along and they would break their legs, then obviously they didn't have any way of pushing themselves back up again, so they just suffocated to death. Okay? Um, So again, very interestingly, the Bible predicted long time ago, that Jesus would not have his legs broken. That's an oddity. Most crucifixion victims that you study in history had their legs broken to sort of, you know, because they could hang up there for days if they didn't break their legs. I mean, it was that, you know, bad. So anyway, I digress a little bit, but thought this might be of help to you. And and thought especially when the Bible says that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, that's what it's talking about. He is the focus of of the prophetic scriptures. He is the one that we are to be focused on and worshiping and not enamored with all these other things. Keep our focus upon Jesus. That's why then, notice then, one of the great passages in the whole word of God. In fact, I think, and this is just me, I don't think the greatest day in history was the day that God created man. I don't think the greatest day in history was... uh, the day that Jesus was born. I don't think the greatest day in history was even the day that Jesus died or rose again. I think the greatest day in history is going to be this day. The day in verse 11, when I saw, John says, heaven open, and here he came, a white horse, and the one riding on it was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadem crowns on his head. He has a name written no one knows except himself. He is dressed in clothing dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God. The armies, that's you and I. We're in verse 14. The armies that are in heaven, dressed in white, clean, fine linen, were following him on white horses. Now, we don't do anything. We don't have any weapons, because he doesn't need our help. We're just along for the ride. It's pretty cool. From his mouth extends a sharp sword, so that with it he can strike the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod, and he stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God the All-Powerful. He has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we pray for. In the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, He said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the day. That's what you you pray, you you ever say the the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, that's it. 
That's it. When he comes to rule and to reign and to finally put down all evil and rebellion. Then verse 17, I saw one angel standing in the sun and he shouted in a loud voice to all the birds flying high in the sky, come gather around for the great banquet of God to eat your fill of the flesh of the kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of powerful people, the flesh of horses and those who ride them and the flesh of all people, both free and slave and small and great. Because the battle of Armageddon, my friends, is going to be a slaughter. There's just no other way to say it. It's going to be a slaughter. Because notice verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to do battle with the one who rode the horse and with his army. And this is what the Bible calls the battle of Armageddon. The battle that takes place at the very end of the tribulation at the second coming of Christ. Alright? Now, you'll notice that they really don't tell us too much about the battle because again, to be honest with you, the way we look at a battle, it's like there's there, you don't know who's going to win. <laughs> Well, here, there's not really a battle. It's all done almost immediately. Because the Bible says, as soon as Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven, that's you and I again. Just one. <laughs> I think that's cool. I don't know. I, I like that. That the beast was seized, the Antichrist, and along with him, and here's the first time you see this mentioned, the false prophet. Remember back when we talked about the beast coming out of the earth? And I said, that's the guy called the false prophet. You're just introduced to that title for him later on. This is where it is. So the Antichrist is seized, and along with him the false prophet, who had performed the signs on his behalf, signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. Again, don't forget, it's by these miraculous deceptions that they will deceive the people of the earth. All miracles are not from God. Don't forget that. Satan can do miracles. Okay, with God's permission, but Satan can do miracles. Primarily for the purpose of deception. Both of them, notice, were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur. The others were killed by the sword that extended from the mouth of the one who rode the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. And that's really all the Bible says about the Battle of Armageddon. I'm sure there's a lot more than that. But I think we're given enough to sort of get the picture. Jesus wins. And all those who are rebelling against him lose. Then you'll notice something in chapter 20. And I'll stop here in just a moment. Here's the confinement of Satan for a while. Then I saw an angel descending from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and tied him up for a thousand years. Then the angel then threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it so he could not deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were finished. After these things, he will be released for a brief period of time. So now, after the tribulation is over and the second coming of Christ comes and the battle of Armageddon is over, we begin what the Bible calls the thousand-year millennium. And during that thousand-year millennium, where Christ will literally rule and reign from earth, Satan is not on the scene to deceive anybody on the earth. He is confined to what the Bible calls this bottomless pit. Now let's remember something. A couple things I just want to throw out here that don't have anything to do with the binding of Satan to a point, but it does to a point. Satan is a spiritual being, so he's not really bound as much as he is just confined. You can't bind a spiritual being. In fact, let me go a step further how we can apply this to our lives. I personally, just throwing this out there, 
don't think, and if you find it, you show it to me. I don't know of any scripture in the Bible that talks about binding Satan. That phrase is used a lot. And people talk about binding Satan. I have never found that in the Bible. Because the only time Satan, in a sense, is bound anywhere in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, if you read the book of Jude, the book of Jude says that Michael the archangel didn't even argue with Satan, but said the Lord rebuke you. So this teaching about the fact that we as Christians can somehow bind Satan, I just have no clue where people get that in the Bible. Unless, somehow, they're saying, well, he can be bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and that's somewhere where they get it. But if you know of where that verse is at, please show it to me, because I've never found it. And like I said, I think it's very interesting that Michael the archangel didn't even have the power to bind Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So I just, you know, and I hear that a lot. People saying, talking about binding Satan. The Bible says we can resist Satan, okay? But nowhere will you find anything, a command to a Christian to bind Satan, at least that I've ever found. Okay, anyway, so he, he's on ice for a thousand years. Then verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. Guess who that is? You. You're going to judge and rule with Christ on earth. That's what Jesus meant when he said, You are my heirs and joint heirs with Christ, and you will rule and reign with me. We're going to help judge. Keep things in order during the millennial kingdom. That's one of our responsibilities. In fact, keep your finger there and let me take you back to another passage of scripture that illustrates this because some of you aren't believing me. I can see you're, you're, you're shaking your head going, no, no, I can't buy that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me show you from the hand of Paul. You don't believe John and you don't believe Jeff. Then believe Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me set it up for you. The Corinthian church was an interesting lot. They were always fighting with each other. Not good, right? We're supposed to be unified in the body of Christ. We're supposed to, you know, get along at least a little bit, right? They were always fighting with each other. And Paul really got upset with that because he said, you guys are being a terrible testimony of Christ. And you're being a terrible testimony to the wisdom that God gave you when you accepted Christ. Because now you have the mind of Christ, you have the word of God, and you ought to be able to settle disputes between yourselves rather than having to go to the courts of law and stand before an ungodly judge and let him settle these things for you. You ought to be able to settle it yourself. And then notice the reason behind it. Let's begin with verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 6. Notice it. When any of you has a legal dispute with another... Does he dare go to court before the unrighteous rather than before the saints? Now here, look at it. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? I just showed it to you. You're a saint, you're judging the world. Notice this. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to settle trivial suits? In other words, one day God's going to put you in charge of judging big things. You should be able to judge some smaller things now. Notice verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? You see, one day, 
A lot of people think that angels are over us. Well, they're not. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister and serve us. And that actually in God's economy, when we get to glory and all of the saints of all time and the angels and we're all out there together, the angels are going to be a little bit lower than what we are. We're going to be above them in rank. And so part of our job throughout the kingdom and also into eternity is going to be, we're going to be ruling and reigning angels. Better start holding your head up. <laughs> yes, it is. And not judge in the sense that they're being judged as far as reward, but that we're going to rule. In other words, God may say to us, you know, I want a few of these angels to do this. Will you, you know, and, and we're going to be in charge of some angels. So, you know, so what Paul's saying here is, guys, this is what the future of the saints are. This is what the saints of God are going to do in the kingdom. We're going to rule. We're going to reign. We're going to judge angels. So how comes we can't settle a few disputes down? It looks pretty bad if we can't settle some easy things down here and God's going to put us in charge of ruling and reigning with Him one day in the kingdom? Notice He goes on to say, why not ordinary matters? So if you have ordinary lawsuits, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Is there no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between fellow Christians? You see, my personal then take on what he's saying is this. There should never, never be an instance in the church where two Christians or a group of Christians can't have something settled. There should be somebody in that church, somebody wise enough, somebody in touch with God to where that thing can be settled before it blows up and splits a church and causes all kinds of problems. Because Paul says, my friends, I hate to tell you, but one day God's going to put us in charge of a lot more than what we have down here. And if we can't handle it down here, how do we expect him to give it to us up there? <sighs> Sorry, I just... But and, that, and that's part of the reason why I said, you know, that's why our Christian life, we need to show ourselves faithful in the little things so that when the kingdom time comes, God can give us more. Because He knows, okay, you proved yourself faithful here in handling that, then I'm, I'm going to put you in charge of this. Alright, let's go back. I, I'm... Revelation chapter 20. Yes. For verse 4, isn't it pretty specific about, about it sounds like those are, those are the saints of the um, <laughs> Tribulation, right? This says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Right. Not worship the beast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in that context there, you could say that, that that was the tribulation saints. But again, there are other passages like 1 Corinthians that teach the, you know, the principle. Sin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it does go on to say, you know, they came to life and they reigned with Christ, notice at the end of verse 4, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. Because then we come to this part in Revelation, where the Bible says you have two resurrections we need to keep in mind. We have the first resurrection, which notice there in that next verse, he says, blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection, which part of that's going to be the tribulation saints and all of that. But then 
we also know that that means that there's another resurrection, a second one, in this context. And that's the resurrection that you don't want to be a part of. Because that's the resurrection of all those who have rejected Christ. Alright? The unrighteous. This is a resurrection, the first resurrection, of the righteous. Those who know Christ. Alright? And that's why he simply says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. The second death has now has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And that verse there is talking about every saint. Because every saint is going to be part of what we call this first resurrection, where we're resurrected and where we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. The second resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous, takes place a thousand years later, after the thousand year millennium. And see, every saint is going to be part of this, ruling and reigning with Christ on earth. So every saint is going to be resurrected. If they haven't been yet, they're going to be resurrected so that they can be a part of the thousand-year millennium. But all the wicked dead, they don't get resurrected till after the millennium is over. And we'll see that in just a moment. So there's a thousand years that separate these two resurrections. And that's why it's saying in this context, blessed if you're a part of this resurrection. Because that means you're part of Christ and you're going to be part of the thousand-year millennium. If you're part of the second resurrection that happens after the thousand-year millennium, then you're not part of Christ, and you will not rule and reign with Christ. In fact, you'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. Yes? I'm still a little confused about this. The rest of the dead did not come to life for the thousand years. It says that tribulation saints are going to be with Christ for the thousand years. And the rest of the dead don't come to life until after the thousand years. And who is that? That's the ungodly. That's the ungodly? Yes. That's the ungodly. That's what that verse is referring to. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. All right? That is talking about those in the second resurrection. And they will be resurrected again for the great white throne judgment that you see in verse 11, which we're going to get to here in just a moment. Yeah. Good question. So you'll notice also in here, just a reminder, the Bible clearly teaches a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year millennial kingdom. I mean, there's a lot of people that reject that. They think that's just symbolic, uh, it's not really going to happen, yada, yada, yada. I mean... Unless you're going to twist it somehow, and again, not take the Bible literally, you got to come up with some other way because it clearly says we're going to rule and reign with Christ a thousand years. Okay, the end of verse 6. Yes, question. Uh, this is going back a bit. You were saying um, thy kingdom come, but Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. So if it's, if it's within you, why would you say thy kingdom come? Well, the kingdom of God is now present within us. Yeah. But one day, the kingdom of God will be visible here on earth in the millennial kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, right now, it looks like, like I said, God's not in control. God's not ruling. Satan's able to do whatever he wants to do. Men can do whatever they want to do. Because, as Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this earth, to Pilate, I'd fight. My kingdom is not of this earth. My kingdom right now is in the hearts of those who believe in me. That's where my kingdom is being fleshed out now. 
But one day, again, going back to all the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Bible always predicted that the one who did die on the cross for our sins was also going to come back and rule and reign. In fact, that's what the Jews were always looking for. They were looking for that Messiah. They just weren't buying into the Messiah that was going to die. They didn't like that part. But it's not like Baskin-Robbins where it has 31 flavors and you pick whichever flavor you like. It's the way it is, you know. So... Then, notice this, verse 7. Here's something very interesting. When the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. And most people are like, why does God allow Satan back out? He had him right where he wanted him. Why? Why does God allow this to happen? Why? Well, there's a couple reasons that I know of, and I'm sure there's many reasons why God has that I don't know. But let me give you a couple of them. Let me just keep reading. So after the thousand years were finished, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to bring them together for the battle. You see, here's an interesting sort of trivia. The last battle in the Bible is not the Battle of Armageddon. Most people think that, but that's not true. The Battle of Armageddon takes place before the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, at the end of the tribulation. The final battle in the Bible was actually this battle that takes place after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, after Satan has been bound for a thousand years, where he goes back out and he deceives the nations and brings them together for one final world rebellion. For in verse 9, the Bible says, They went up on the broad plain of the earth. They encircled the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them completely. And again, it's not really a battle. It lasts a few seconds, and then God, God goes, and they're all gone. I mean, so it's not, you know, we think of a battle, we think of this struggle and whatever. It's not really a battle. It's the idea that they gather together, they're encircling the camp of the saints, they're about ready to destroy the saints of God, and God just puts a stop to it right there. And then the devil... Verse 10, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are too and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. A couple things. First of all, that verse right there evaporates all theories of what's called annihilationism. Which means that some people just can't, they can't, they just won't believe the punishment of the wicked is a forever thing. So they say, here's what God's going to do. God might throw them in the lake of fire for a while, but then eventually he's just going to annihilate them so that they don't even exist anymore. No, the Bible teaches eternal punishment, just like it teaches eternal bliss for the saint. There is no There doesn't get a point where somewhere in the lake of fire after a thousand, hundred thousand, ten million years that God annihilates them. That's not biblical. It's very clear here that they live forever and ever in torment. Why does God allow Satan to come back out after a thousand years? Well, I'll give you just a couple reasons that I can come up with. One, it shows this. It shows the incurable wickedness of Satan. Because here he was, all along, bound up in this bottomless pit for a thousand years. And you think he came out and said... You know what, God, I realize I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm just, I'm a bad person. I need to change. I, I want you in my life. I, I don't want to rebel again. I don't want to form rebel. No. Satan is just as bad, if not worse, 
after a thousand years as he was before. So again, that sort of again shows us why it has to be eternal. Because God could throw Satan into the lake of fire for a million years. He's not going to come out of the lake of fire any better than what he went in. He's not going to change. And to be honest with you, another reason why Satan is let out is because God is also showing how depraved and how hard the human heart is. Because after a thousand years of living in perfect environment, because Jesus is ruling and reigning, not man, this is going to be a perfect environment that man is still going to be led astray by Satan when he has the chance. In other words, all those who live during this time don't, don't accept Christ as their Savior. They're, they're in his kingdom, but not everybody in his kingdom who's born here, at least inwardly, is going to bow to Christ. Outwardly, they have to conform because he's ruling with the rod of iron. But you see, as soon as they get a chance to rebel, they take it. And it just shows, again, God is saying, see, I can put people in a perfect kingdom, ruled by Jesus, perfect environment, to come to God. They have no excuse for rebelling against me. They have seen for a thousand years how good I am, how I provide, what kind of God I am, what kind of character I have, for a thousand years. Because, my friends, I don't think people die during this time. I think they stay, I think it sort of goes back to the way it was in the Old Testament where people lived a long time, like Methuselah to 900. I think people just live long during this time and nobody dies during this time. And people see the goodness of God. And they're not even, they don't even know Satan for many of them that are born during it. They don't even know about Satan. Because he's, he's confined. He's not even around. So they can't say, the devil made me. No, nobody can say that. <laughs> But as soon as God lets Satan out, look what happens. They follow Satan. The first chance they get to rebel against God, there they go. So again, God, I think, is just showing us an x-ray of what is really inside and why he deals the way he does, because it's the way it needs to be. Yes? What, what makes us so special then? I mean, why don't we do that? No, I mean, once you've accepted Christ, you're you're locked in. Uh, to answer your question, though, Ramona, yeah, there is nothing special about us. It's by His grace we're saved. And we just came to a point in our life where we realized we couldn't save ourselves, but He could. And it doesn't mean we don't fail Him even after we accept Him. We do. We, we fail Him. We, we don't always do what we should do. So these people are just, it's but just their heart? Yeah, they have it's their a bad heart. heart. Yeah. It's their heart. It's their bent towards anti-God rather than for you know, like for us. And I guess here's the difference: for us, even though we do things that don't please God and, and don't please us, our heart is we we want to do right and, and we want to do it. It's sort of like Paul says in the Book of Romans: things that I want to do, I don't always find myself doing, but I want to do those things. My heart, I, I want to be more like God, and I, I want to pursue God, but I fail a lot of times. These people, the difference is, they don't want to be like God. 
they don't they don't want anything to do with God. And the first chance they get to go against God, they take it. They take it. Yes. When Satan is locked up and it says he cannot deceive the earth anymore, can he still tempt? No, I think what this is saying is that he's totally incapable of any influence on the earth for that thousand years. And that's why it makes this such a cool time, because Jesus is ruling, Satan is nowhere to be found, it's just going to be a cool time to be on the earth. The Bible says in the Old Testament, don't forget, this is the time where even the animals get along, where the lion and the lamb lie down together, and the lamb doesn't have to worry about being eaten by the lion, and... And we don't have to worry about, you know, picking up a cobra because a cobra won't bother us anymore. It's going to be a really neat time to be on the earth because a lot of the things are going to be reversed during this great millennial kingdom here on earth, you see. One other question. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago you said that when God sends people to like a fire that they don't go unloved. Would that apply for Satan as well? Oh, yeah. I think Satan, remember, Satan was like, the most magnificent angelic creation that God ever made. Maybe Michael. In fact, there's a lot of, and this is speculation, that the two angels that sort of covered the mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant were representative of Michael and Lucifer. That they were the two most powerful angels and the two most, you know, in rank, because just like if you study angelology, there are ranks amongst the angels. Not all the angels are equally powerful or equally, just like all of us as human beings. God didn't give us all the same gifts and, and abilities and all that. Same thing with angels. He created them all differently and unique too. And I think the two most powerful angels that God ever created, according to the Bible, is Michael, the archangel, and Lucifer. So yeah, he, I mean, he was a magnificent creation. But because of all that God gave to him, it corrupted him. It, it turned him around to, to pride and to go against God. It's, it's almost like today, you know, sometimes the more God blesses somebody, the worse it is. Because again, what they're given almost corrupts them rather than makes them more thankful and appreciative and they take things for granted. And I think Satan had gotten to that point where his mind got to that point. But good stuff. Uh, notice also then, we'll wrap it up tonight from verse uh, chapter 20. In verse 11 then, after this rebellion, is the second resurrection. And then I saw a large white throne and the one who was seated on it. The earth and the heaven fled away from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Then books were opened and another book was opened, the book of life. So the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their deeds. And again, remember something. We're not talking about us. This is the wicked. This is, these are those people who don't know Christ or don't want Christ or have rejected Christ. The great white throne judgment has nothing to do with Christians. Okay? First of all, our judgment took place on the cross of Christ. And the Bible clearly says there's now therefore no condemnation. So we're not going to be judged... For our sins. We're going to be rewarded when we get to heaven, but we're not going to be judged for our sins. Jesus was our judgment. But they're judged according to their deeds because that's all they have. They don't have Christ. So the only thing that God can judge them for is their deeds, and it will be their deeds that then determine their different 
place in the lake of fire. And let me show you that before I finish tonight, because I said I was going to do that. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew. This is one passage that illustrates the degrees of punishment in hell, and it's by the mouth of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. Then Jesus began to criticize openly the cities in which he had done many of his miracles because they did not repent. Because the principle is, the more light we are given and reject, the greater our punishment will be. So the more light somebody has that they reject, the greater the punishment. So remember that when Jesus goes to say this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be thrown down to Hades. For if the miracles done among you had been done in Sodom, it would have continued to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for the region of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Wow. We think Sodom and Gomorrah, a bad, bad place. Yeah. But Jesus said, if I would have done the miracles I did in those cities, or this city, and that city, they would have repented and turned to God. So because I did these miracles right in front of your eyes, and you saw the power of God through me, the Messiah and you rejected me because you saw me with your own eyes and you rejected me, it's going to be worse for you than it is for those who have not seen. See, that's why, how we can bring this up to our day and age. And, and please listen to what I'm about to say. And I hope you get where I'm coming from with this. As much as we want people to come to church and to hear the Word of God, it would be better for people not to come to church and hear the word of God if, if they're going to reject it than to stay home. Because the more you hear the word of God and you don't receive it and you don't put it into practice and you don't apply it, the judgment goes up. Because the more light we're given that we reject, the more we're responsible. It just goes back to the more we're given, the more we're responsible for. So, like for me, I love to study the Word. I love to be in the Word about 50 hours a week. But do you realize the responsibility that puts on me? Because that means God's going to hold me more responsible because I, hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm learning a little bit more and knowing more and therefore I better live it more. Jeff, I had a question. Yes. Verse 11, we're talking about the wicked and... Uh, he opens the book of life. Uh, as far as I understood, that the wicked would not have their names in the book of life. Is that what he's proving that they're not? Right, they're not in the book of life. In fact, good good question. If you go back to Revelation, let's just finish this out, and then I'll wrap it up tonight for any comments or questions. So, verse thirteen of chapter twenty: The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to his deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Because remember, there's not going to be any more death. So death goes in there too. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You see, just as there is a second and higher life like we have in Christ, I mean, there's physical life, 
And then there's real life in Christ. That's why Jesus said, I've come that they might have life, John 10, 10, and have it more abundantly. There's life, and then there's life. Well, there's death, and then there's death. That's the second death. That's death without Christ. That is death for all of eternity without God. That's death in the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that person was thrown into the lake of fire. And this verse evaporates all theories of universalism, which people say, isn't everybody going to go to heaven? Nope, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's going to be many who are thrown into the lake of fire, including Satan, the beast, the false prophet, death, and Hades itself, all going into the lake of fire. One other thing, and then I'm going to... Some people... Jesus described the lake of fire as a place where the worm doesn't die, and where the fire is not quenched. And he also described it this way. It is a place of unbelievable darkness. Now some people used to say, well, Jeff, how can you have all these, this, these flames, this lake of fire, and it be dark? Because the hottest flame is a black flame. The hottest flame is a black flame. It's going to be totally dark. I just, I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine what it's going to be like. And that's why we as the church have to share Christ when we get the opportunity with people. Because I don't know about you, but one thing that studying the book of Revelation just reminds me of is how important it is for us to be witnesses and to share the Jesus that we have. We know we're going to heaven, and we know we're going to be part of that millennial kingdom, but we want other people to be there too. And if God gives us opportunities to share our faith, boy, let's take those opportunities to do that. It's just so very important. And I think hopefully too, as we have studied through the book of Revelation, we've only got two more chapters to go, that the other thing will be that we just so appreciate knowing Christ. Like you were saying, we don't deserve it. There, there's nothing in us that, you know, wow, God's lucky to have me. And No, it's not that at all. It's by His grace we are saved, through faith. And thank you, God, that you reached down to me one day and you revealed yourself to me and I just accepted it and humbled myself and asked you to be my Savior. Thank you, God. I mean, if... if, if any study should make us appreciate our salvation. It should be the study of the book of Revelation. We should be so thankful that we should be praising God every day that we are saved and we're on our way to heaven and we know Him. And if nothing else, it should also be an unbelievable motivation to get out there and share our faith with those who don't know. Thank you, guys. Any comments or questions? Yes, a couple. Does Matthew 11 imply that there's levels of hell? Yes. I think so. I think, again, there's those degrees of punishment in hell. Yeah. Yes? Um, the Christians in the thousand-year millennium are going to miss the marriage supper of the Lamb? No, I think the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place... Let me, let me go through this. After the battle of Armageddon, after the second coming of Christ, but before the thousand years. In other words, between, between the battle of Armageddon and the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ would be the celebration. But are there going to be people that are born during the thousand years that are going to become Christians? Born during the thousand years that will be Christians. 
I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Because everybody who enters the thousand-year millennium is either going to have been a resurrected tribulation saint, a resurrected New Testament saint, or a resurrected Old Testament saint. So no new people. So, well, I think there will be people born during the thousand-year tribulation from the saints, but they will be children who will end up doing the rebellion at the end when Satan is loosed from the pit. So you don't, you don't have a chance to accept Jesus when you're born during that time? I, I'm going to have to re-look at that. That's a good question, and I'm not sure I how I how I look at that. How I look at that. Yeah. Because I know that... Boy... That's a good question. Let me get back with you on that and look at that. Yeah. Well, isn't, isn't everybody in the thousand-year reign a Christian? Yeah, that's... And I guess what she's saying is, okay, if you're born during the thousand years, do you have a chance to accept Christ? I would say, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think God, again, is going to... But I also know, too, that there's going to be many who are born because all the people who come into the thousand-year millennium all know God. So there's nobody who comes into the thousand-year millennium who doesn't know God. But there's going to be a lot of babies born during that thousand-year millennium who are going to grow up and become quite old before the thousand-year millennium is over. And many of them are going to be this rebellion at the end. Yeah. So they too will have children. And they too will have children. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've heard it said we have to have children at ten. No, 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 not no, 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 no. No, no, no. Yes, God. I've heard it said that in the lifetime judgment there will be judgments of saints from possibly the tribulation, the Old Testament, and the maybe the millennium also. Wow. No, from my understanding, the white throne judgment is just people who don't know Christ. No saints at the white throne judgment. We're at the Bema Seat Judgment, 1 Corinthians 3, but we're not at the Great White Throne Judgment. Because, see, the Great White Throne Judgment ends with all those who are not written in the Book of Life. Well, to be written in the Book of Life means you know Christ. I don't see how anybody... What I think he's referring to are people that live before Christ so they didn't know it Well, if, if they rejected God back in the Old Testament, yeah, they'll be part of that second resurrection. I mean, it, it's basically a generalization. Anybody in part of the first resurrection is going to be all those who know God. Those who are part of the second resurrection, no matter when they were born, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, now they'll be part of the second resurrection is raised up at the, at the great white throne judgment and judged for not knowing God. Jim, yeah. the thousand Saints, yeah, and that's what's gonna. That's why Jesus has to rule with the rod of iron, because again, not everybody is going to, in their heart, want to follow God, but outwardly they will be made to follow God during that time. And who's going to have the children? Yeah. Yeah, God's not going to... The, the people who are going to be having the children, starting to have the children, are going to be those who survive through the tribulation, who have children during the thousand-year millennium. 
Not not those who died and then they come back and have no. Yeah. If you're it's, gonna you're gonna look different than us. We're gonna be able to know that that we're here. Yeah, and that's that's a, one of those weird things that there's going to be sort of a hybrid taking place for a thousand years where there's going to be angels there, there's going to be those of us who are glorified there, and then there's going to be those who are not glorified there. It's going to sort of be a... You touched a little bit about binding Satan. Mm-hmm. What about, as Christians, or do we have authority to rebuke Satan? I was going to say, I don't know of a verse that that commands us as Christians to rebuke Satan. I know that there's that verse that says that we should resist Satan when he's tempting us or oppressing us, but I don't know of a verse to rebuke him. Now, I will say this, if we're saying this, if we're saying that if if I feel that Satan is oppressing me and I, I quote scripture, if, if, if somebody's saying, I, I look at that as rebuking, then that's a matter of semantics, and I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. But again, I think we have to be careful, because Jude says that Michael, the archangel, didn't even rebuke Satan. If Michael didn't feel like he had the authority to rebuke Satan, you know, I, I don't know. Again, I think Jesus taught us how to handle Satan, which was, use scripture. The best way to fight our spiritual battles is with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. So when Satan begins to work on our minds or our hearts or tempt us or whatever, the best way to do it is to get into the Word and begin to fill our minds with Scripture. And if, for instance, like there, and I've shared this before, if if you feel like Satan is making you feel worthless or whatever and, and he's trying to beat you down, that we have to quote Scriptures that counteract that and fill our minds with the truth and tell ourselves the truth rather than listening to his lies because the Bible says he's the father of lies. So if if he's saying a lie and I'm counteracting it with truth, if we want to say that's rebuking Satan, I don't have a problem with that. You know, again, it might be a semantical thing. All right, I've ran over. Yes, one question. Just one quick one. Uh, I've always thought, you know, if you really feel that Satan's no, no, I don't In think so at all. Right, exactly, exactly, yep, exactly. Hey guys, I'm sorry I kept you over tonight. Let me close real quick with prayer. We kept you over. Thank you guys, you're great. Father, we thank you again for your word and just help us, Lord, as we wrestle with some of these things and try to understand it all. And Lord, we know there's a lot to understand, but Father, the most important thing is, do we know Jesus? Do we have Jesus in our heart? Are we living for him every day? The things that you are revealing to us that we need to do in our lives, are we paying attention to those things? Are we being sensitive to the Spirit? Father, that's the most important thing. Are we sharing our faith with those when we get the opportunity? So Father, we know there's a lot of information here and a lot that can overwhelm all of us, but Father, just help us to stay focused on Christ and we're going to be okay. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.